Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, eight years ago when the legislature okayed casinos in the Bay State, opponents worried that more opportunities to gamble would make it difficult for people with a gambling habit. Today, Everett's Encore Boston Harbor Resort is set to open in just under two months. It's the third Massachusetts casino to pop up in recent years with more to come. How bad is this for compulsive gamblers, and does this environment put many others at risk of developing problem gambling habits? Later in the show, playwright Kui Gwen swears his raunchy off-Broadway hit Viet Gone is not based on the lived experiences of real people, especially not his parents. Gwen's kinda true refugee rom-com transcends wartime to show the power of human connection despite the circumstances. But first, joining me in the studio, Dr. Debbie LaPlante, Director of Cambridge Health Alliance's Division on Addiction. Hello, Dr. LaPlante. Hi, Kelly. Also with me, Marlene Warner, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. Hello, Marlene. Hello. And joining me from the studios of WNHN, Ed Talbot, Executive Director of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Good to have you. I want to start with a question that might seem simple, but I think people need to understand it. Marlene, what is gambling addiction? So gambling addiction can look a little bit different to every person. It's really uh, when gambling becomes something that's no longer comfortable. It's uh, when an individual can no longer control their gambling behavior. So gambling itself can be fun and entertaining, but for someone who's struggling with a gambling addiction, it's really overpowering them. It's causing some social problems, emotional problems, mental problems. could be causing problems at home or at school or at work. Uh, So it really can manifest itself differently for each person, but it's really taking a a hold on somebody. It's controlling their lives. So, Dr. LaPlante, it sounds like every other kind of addiction we've ever heard about. Is that true? It actually has shares a lot of similarities with other expressions of addiction. You specifically can look to the experience of people who have gambling-related problems. They often crave gambling when they're not engaging in that behavior. They continue gambling despite adverse consequences, and they feel a loss of control over their gambling behavior. And those are very similar experiences to what people who might have problems with alcohol or other substances feel as well. Ed Talbot, you are someone who now counsels people with gambling addiction, but you yourself were a person who really was struggling with that. You started when you were quite young. Please talk about how you got into it. Actually, it was quite innocent. I was uh, a passenger in a car on the way to high school. The driver in the car was going to go to the local dog track that night and asked if we wanted to chip in and play a daily double. And four of us put in 50 cents. The next day we got in the car and he said, we won $21, you know, split four ways, uh, big $5 win. But those days, that was big money. And that, that was the first bet I made, and it was successful. 
And so from there, I mean, that sounds like something I could do. I could, you know, go up to MGM Springfield and place and, you know, I, I think I'd walk away and, and, and not have um, any lingering, except I'd like to win, of course. But, I'd, but you know, it wouldn't bother me after that. What, what, what took a hold of you? Uh, after that, I started doing it recreationally as I got a little bit older and started going to the track legally with a bunch of guys and that. And, you know, we'd have a fun night, drink a couple of beers, bet the dogs. But I really liked being at the track. And it just progressed over the years. I wound up working at the track for 11 years. And the gambling and the problems associated with it escalated. And as Dr. LaPlante mentioned, the different signs of the addiction, the difference with the gambling is uh, you wouldn't drink another beer or smoke another joint and think that was going to solve all your problems. But with the gambler, and especially in my case, I got into the chasing phase where you can see the only way out is that big hit. And that lie keeps you gambling and digs the hole deeper and deeper. Is it possible for someone who recreationally gambling or maybe every now and then may come across it to then become an addict without having some underlying addictive tendencies? I think that's what a lot of us think about as we consider compulsive gambling. Mm -hmm. I think that this is actually a, a pretty complicated question. I mean, it really relates to the development of addiction. At the division, we do work on how addiction emerges, and we look to psychological predispositions, biological predispositions, social predispositions. And we look at how those things come together with the experiences that you have in your life and the contact that you have with different potential objects of addiction. And really it is an interaction between all of those things and a continued engagement with that particular behavior. So I think that it is important to have some of those risk factors, and Ed mentioned some from his own story, some well-known risk factors. In fact, early exposure in your mm. life, uh, having an early big win, him being a man, some of those factors that kind of set you up to being at risk for developing addiction later on. I'd say it's important to note that addiction isn't just doing a lot of something. You have to have these other hallmark characteristics. You have to have the important consequences that are associated with addiction. It's really about the relationship that an individual has with that particular experience, more so than just the amount that they're doing something. So Marlene, 2% of the population are problem gamblers and I understand it translates to about 500,000 people in, in Massachusetts. Is that about right? That's right, yeah. So when we think about that, that's really people who meet clinical criteria. So that's kind of the most extreme population. There are also folks who are at high risk. So some folks may also call problem gamblers, and that's 8.4% of the population. So we're in total looking at 10.4% of the Massachusetts population based on the study done, the social and economic impacts of gaming in Massachusetts uh, study that's been done at UMass Amherst. So the reason I've been interested in having this conversation for some time is, as I look around in Massachusetts, there appears to be a lot of gambling available, more and more opportunities. Not only are the casinos that I mentioned at the beginning, there's the lottery, and now there's talk, uh, the Governor Baker would like to bring in sports gambling, online sports betting. That seems to me to add to an at-risk environment in a way that would perhaps propel some people who are not in that 500,000 group that we're talking about, because as you said, those are the extreme people, but could cause other people to fall prey. Am I wrong, Marlene? So I think 
that's another complicated question yeah. uh, Debbie and I both can kind of tackle a little bit. I think that what we know is that there's an exposure adaptation model. And again, I'll let Dr. LaPlante talk about this a little bit more. But at some point, people, they adapt to their environment. They adapt to the amount of gambling. So we know that it used to be that people within a 50-mile radius of a new casino one would assume that their rates would go up, but we're not seeing that as much. In fact, we know that, again, with the study done at a UMass Amherst, one year after Plain Ridge Park Casino opened, they looked at the the rates, and the rates haven't changed at all. And so it could be that people living in southeastern Massachusetts, because they've already been exposed to the casinos in Rhode Island, uh, that they're closer to the casinos in Connecticut, that they're pretty densely populated in terms of lottery agents, that they already have an exposure that was not going to make them at high risk for more gambling coming in. Mm -hmm. So I think the the short answer is we don't know. Sports gambling is a whole new thing because we know that the Supreme the US Supreme Court last May overturned it being illegal across the states that each individual state now is setting up uh, different rules, different laws as it relates to that. So I think it, a lot remains to be seen. Your point though around, you know, the extreme population in terms of folks who already have the addiction versus the folks that are high risk, that to me is the, the group that we need to be most concerned with. How do we keep people build their protective factors and minimize their risk factors so that they are not coming in to more problems as more um, exposure happens. Uh, so, Ed, I just wonder, if for you, who struggled with this a long time in your life before you finally got control of it, and one is always in recovery, so I know that you continue to be that, what would it have meant for you to have all of these new things that are potentially going to be available. So uh, as Marlene has said, and as, as Dr. LaPlante has said, that you know we're exposed here with the casinos, and we have the lottery now, the, the, the sports betting is going to come to be, and the potential of online gambling as well. Well, especially in my case, I had a hard time accepting that I couldn't gamble safely. I thought it was, I didn't have a gambling problem. One of my keys in denying it was I only bet paramutual racing, either the horse track or the dog track. The Massachusetts State Lottery was just starting when I first started gambling. I didn't play the lottery. I didn't go to casinos. So I was in denial. I thought somebody had to be in action all the time. Uh, two seagulls flying down the street, you'd bet on who got to the corner first. But that isn't it. When I realized my life was completely unmanageable and that had been as the result of my gambling, that's when I really came to grips with it. And I tried to stop several times on my own and was unsuccessful. Um, I want to take a listen to a clip from a multimedia series by the Las Vegas Sun. This was in 2011, which is, as you know, the same year that uh, Massachusetts decided to expand casinos here. And it's really about the human toll of compulsive gambling, about which uh, Ed uh, Talbot, my guest, was just speaking about. This is Tony McDew, and he's talking about his struggles as a compulsive gambler. It's like you're getting high. You're on cloud nine, and you can, no one can tell you that, hey, what you're doing is, is wrong. I felt like I put all this money in, and over the period of years, it's going to pay off. Later on, I got into title loan. Title loan is where you pawn your car. So I did that, and that's where I made my mistakes, thinking that the casino was going to give me that money, pay back the pawn shop, and I'm losing a lot of my, my valuable. Ed Talbot, you can relate to that, right? Positively can a year before I stopped gambling, my mother was on her deathbed dying of cancer. The night before she passed away, she talked to her three sons, and her words to me weren't, Ed, I love you, you've been a wonderful son. It was, if you don't stop your gambling, you're going to lose everything. She passed away the next day, 
And I spent the next year proving her absolutely right. I lost everything I had, uh, was out of the house, out of a job, out of money, out of self-esteem, uh, you know, a completely broken person. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Debbie LaPlante of the Division on Addiction, Marlene Warner of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling, and Ed Talbot, you just heard him, of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. We're discussing gambling addiction prevention and treatment in Massachusetts, or we're about to, as gambling opportunities become more common around the state. So let's talk about prevention and treatment. Honestly, Debbie, I don't understand how one prevents something you don't know you have until you start doing it. Well, I think that the prevention science for gambling is is really kind of premature still. And we need to do a lot more work to better understand how gambling and gambling disorder emerges over time. And understanding that will help us understand what to do in advance of those problems developing. So we need to do a lot more work to understand what the host of risk factors are, what the host of protective factors are, and really identifying those, honing in on those, and building programs around those pieces of information. I think that it requires a lot of coordination among the key stakeholders with people who also have struggled with this issue. I think doing that would really set us on the path towards a better future with solid prevention programs. So part of the legislation that passed that allowed more casinos in Massachusetts was that a part of that money that came, the revenue that came into the state, would be put aside to help people who would be struggling around this. You said, Marlene, that it really needs to be larger than the individuals, but also the communities need to be looked at because they're impacted as well. But nonetheless, what are you doing now? Because I know you are doing something now to deal with people who are in the throes of being addicted. So we're doing a number of things. We have, first and foremost, our our helpline, which we've had since the day Tom Cummings started the Mass Council 35 years ago. And so someone who understands on the other end of that line or at the other end of your computer to be able to talk with you in real time around what are the struggles you're currently dealing with. So that's the first thing. And I think that's kind of the most important thing because we understand we're here, we can help. In addition to that, though, prior to it becoming a problem, what we really try to do is help the professionals who are out there. So I think one of the things that's key about gambling is that there are very few places where you can just focus on gambling. Instead, we are in centers where they're already dealing with addiction, where they're dealing with mental health. We're in schools. We're in all the various places trying to build capacity of those professionals to be able to ask the right questions, making sure your physicians are asking the right questions. Those are the type of places we're trying to make an impact. And they can recognize some of the symptoms. Exactly, exactly. Having the professionals asking the right questions as well as just them being trained to be able to see some of the signs and symptoms. They call this the invisible or hidden addiction. You don't have track marks. You don't smell like alcohol. You don't have some of those other signs that are fairly typical. But if a bankruptcy attorney is trained to start asking questions about where the money went or if a financial planner is trained to ask kind of what is the daily budget or weekly budget or monthly budget and where are some of these large segments of money going, they're better suited to be able to refer you to help. So that's some of the work we do. 
In addition, we are the host of the GameSense program in Massachusetts. So the Massachusetts Gaming Commission licensed the brand GameSense from the British Columbia Lottery Corporation, and they contract with us to run the centers, which were part of the the mandate through the 2011 Expanded Gaming Act, to have on-site centers at the casino. So I have have staff named GameSense Advisors, or GSAs, who are on-site from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m., seven days a week, at the casinos dressed in green shirts and their whole job is to meet you where you're at so if you've come in for a bachelorette party and Mm -hmm. you've never been to a casino they're going to help you make an informed decision about your gambling Mm -hmm. they're going to tell you how roulette works and the odds of how that works and so that you can make a better decision about that versus a slot machine versus a poker table they're also there if you have some questions about kind of how you interact with gambling whether that be that you have some risk factors or you're just you just have questions. They're there to answer your questions. They're there to bust myths. They're there to offer tips. They're not going to help you gamble to win, but they're going to help you gamble in a safe way for you. Mm-hmm. And then they're also there for the people for whom gambling really becomes out of control. And so those game sense advisors are there to connect you with resources outside the casino. They're there to help you self-exclude if you don't want to go back to the casino. They're really there to meet you again wherever you're at and connect with you in a way that's most helpful. So here's something that I'm interested in, and that is the video games and the slot machines, because it seems to me that slots and these other slot-like machines, these VLTs, the video games, are really drawing people in. And I'm wondering if that's the experience that you've seen, Debbie. And also, Ed, I'm wondering if if you're seeing that as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think Mm -hmm. different people are Mm -hmm. attracted to different type of games, and different people have different problems with different types of games. What we do at the division is really look at people's overall gambling patterns and strategies to try to identify who might be at risk of of having problems. So let me ask you a question. So here we have a whole generations now, generations with an S, of digital natives. Everything's on the phone. Everything's mobile. Everything's electronic. So it seems to me that's an easier path, a kind of gateway. Am I wrong? I think there are some transitions that are going on what people are attracted to. And you can see that some companies are actually pulling slot machines from their casino floor. Their favorite some more modern types of machines, some actual traditional gaming, more like video oh, game mm. gambling. And that, I think, really speaks to what that your point yeah. about trying to attract that young kind of younger generation that doesn't want to just sit there and press one button and watch reels go. They want to kind of be engaged. Maybe they want to actually be doing a video game that they play at home, but they want to kind of wager on on their experience. Ed, what are you seeing in New Hampshire? And of course, we should say that you lived a long time in Massachusetts. So I wonder if any of these, the video games, the VLTs, the stuff on the phone, do you see drawing different generations of folks or is it about the same? I think it's about the same. My experience has been both in from the recovery sense, from the helpline sense, that most of the inquiries we get are centered around casino gambling, period. It's not necessarily slots versus table games and that. But I think sometimes the, the attraction you would expect there, I haven't seen the increase in that versus the other forms of gambling. Yes, Marlene. I mm-hmm. would just say to that end that I think we still really don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, to Debbie's point, we certainly see that um, casinos are are starting to change some of their games out. They're doing stadium gaming so that you can 
play machines, but you're playing as a group um, with someone leading you up front. There's more ways for you to do social casinos on your phone where then you're playing this game here on your phone and then you can go play that same game there. But a lot of that still is yet to be studied. Mm. The piece I will say, though, is that our traditional approaches to intervention and treatment and recovery really are based for more an adult population. And so we wouldn't expect for kids to be reaching out to us on our helpline or showing up at our treatment centers. We're not seeing the impact as much as I think might ex- that we I might, might expect. Get, yeah, guess from just the, the manner in which the formats are Precisely. not drawing. Okay, that's Precisely. interesting. Um, the reason I ask about the, the slot machines in particular is because I saw this clip from the Today Show. Um, this is an addiction specialist. Her name's Nancy Irwin, and she discusses her own gambling addiction, which is the subject of her book, Confessions of a Slot Machine Queen. I started taking out advances on my credit card. Then I started going into my salary, using my earnings to gamble. This is like, it was very rapid. This was a very rapid decline. And it's all, uh, along the way, I'm telling myself, I need to stop because I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to destroy my life. You know, that gave me pause. That was an addiction specialist. So presumably somebody who knew the ways of how um, gambling psychologically could impact you. And yet she, too, you know, got caught up in it. And um, that just gave me pause. I'm wondering for all of you who've been in the field of looking at compulsive gambling, both researching it and working with people who are suffering from it, if you've seen any changes that are significant um, in either the manner in which they first are engaged beyond recreational gambling or in their seeking help, any of that, has there been any significance to note? I'll start with you, Ed Talbot. Uh, first and foremost, I'd say the biggest significance I've seen is the presence of women. Um, I remember wow. the first decade in recovery, it was rare that you saw a woman at a 12-step meeting. I've been at 12-step meetings for the last few years where sometimes the women outnumber the men. And that's, I think, is because gambling has been more attractive with the casinos and that. It's a, you know, it's a night out. It's a fun thing. But then subtly they, people can get sucked into it and then get in trouble. That's probably the biggest change I've seen. And then the traditional forms of gambling, when I started pari mutual race, racing, card games, things like that, have been replaced by the casinos, the lotteries, and sports gambling. So those are big differences, the big differences I've seen. Um, Debbie? I think that Ed makes a great point. Um, I'd also probably bring up technology-based gambling opportunities. And not that they're necessarily at more risk for those, but just kind of more involvement brings out more opportunity to Mm -hmm. develop those types of problems. So watching those changes over time, um, looking at national surveys and things like that has been kind of eye-opening. As well, and I hear that it, with with the technology that a lot of the programmers can now program more near misses, which, as I understand it, is very much addictive for people. So you almost win. That brings you back and draws you in, Marlene. Yes, absolutely. I think that is it's very hard to combat uh, when we're talking about educating someone, right, and helping them make an informed decision. Well, how do you explain that to someone? It's very difficult, and it is something certainly that is able to hook people a little bit more. And I was going to say, in answer to your question, that I feel like over the last 18 years that I've been in the field, we see less people calling our helpline, but when they're calling, they're much more in crisis than they ever were before. Mm -hmm. So I think our 
culture has shifted a bit in terms of how often people are actually going to reach out to a real live person and talk with someone. But when they're calling, they're really in crisis and in desperate need for help. So a number of you uh, mentioned this, but let's put it on the table. What has been the impact of Las Vegas, whatever happens here, stays here, kind of it's a family friendly, it's a, you know, it's a place where you go see shows and you have dinner, the whole attempt to change gambling to gaming, which I refuse to do, so I call it gambling. (laughs) So what about all of these sort of branding things, Ed Talbot, how has that impacted folks who are struggling with gambling addiction? I I think a lot of those things keep the person gambling longer. I don't know how many people I've gotten calls from and I talk to, and they can't uh, quit just yet because they still got comp rooms at the uh, casino. So they're lured back in by that. Things like that that entice them just to keep gambling. We talk about this as a disease, and it was early on in my recovery, it was a big thing. You got to hit rock bottom before you're willing to surrender. Well, if it's really a disease, if you had cancer, you don't wait until you get to stage four and say, I'm not going to treat it. I think anytime you can intervene and, and assist uh, and try to curtail the gambling, because it's only going to progress, it's only going to get worse. Uh, in the years that I've been around, I've never heard anybody relapse and come back in and say, oh, it wasn't quite as bad or I can't, I'm winning. I just want to be stopped. It does get worse. That's Ed Talbot, who's the executive director of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. Debbie, you're nodding your head. Yeah, I would just say to follow up on that, finding these people who are potentially struggling, struggling, finding them early is really important. And that's why we really kind of push for screening in all sorts of different places. And in fact, the division about six years ago now kind of launched an annual gambling disorder screening day Mm. where we promote screening and local treatment providers and advocacy groups. And um, we ask for support from, you know, other key stakeholders. And it really has become both a national and an international program where across the nation people are taking a screen and asking people who ordinarily might not be asked about their gambling-related problems and helping them um, should they screen positive for having an issue. This does a couple of things. It helps the people who might be at risk for having a problem, but it also helps create awareness among some of those groups that Marlene mentioned among bankruptcy lawyers, among people that are involved with criminal justice, educators, yeah, uh, health just providers, sharper. and the like. Yes. Yeah. So has this whole psychological attempt to rebrand, <clears throat> ha- have you seen that impact? It isn't really anything that I specifically have studied. Mm-hmm. I know that the industry really has tried to diversify the way that their businesses operate. Mm-hmm. I think it's worked well for them. Um, I'd say. Yeah. 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 Okay. Marlene, how about you? I may come at it at a slightly different angle, which is our game sense advisors, when they're interacting with someone, what is nice about the opportunity to have things other than gambling on the floor, on the premises, is that gives people an opportunity to take a break. So one of the things we want people to do is pause, take a deep breath, get a drink of water, walk away, be away from the gambling so that they can collect themselves. So the fact that there's now a bowling alley, multiple places to eat, a place to go see a movie, some other activity other than gambling Mm. is actually refreshing in many ways uh, to our game sense advisors who are trying to find a way. They may not be fully willing to walk away from the facility, as I think uh, Ed mentioned, but I do appreciate the opportunity to walk away for a little bit and take a break. And that can just 
you know, maybe get you back into your mind for just a second, you know. Yes, exactly. Uh, um, I noted that um, the website uh, Wallet Hub, which does all kinds of surveys about, you know, any number of issues, just did a survey about the most gambling addicted states, and Massachusetts came in at 26. We're not in the top 10, which is good, um, but we're not 50 either. Now, how they came up with their rankings, I'm not quite sure, but I thought it was interesting. The first state, of course, is Nevada, and followed by South Dakota. Both of those states have a lot of gambling facilities. So if we're talking about, as we started this conversation, about more opportunities, it seems that if you have more, that does make a space for people to find themselves there. And I'm just thinking now, as this new casino is about to open, there's a slot parlor that's going to open on Martha's Vineyard, we still have the lottery, and Governor Baker is just really interested in this uh, sports betting, which, by the way, brings in a lot of revenue for the state, 10%, 12%, depending on how it's, how it's handled. Off the top for the state, that's quite a lot of money. I know it hasn't been quite a year since the MGM Springfield uh, opened, but it will be in August. Do you expect to see any change in what has happened in terms of impact on community or individuals? Debbie? I think that, you know, I would look to history uh, to see what has happened in other places and what has happened in the nation. And since the 1970s, gambling has really expanded quite dramatically in the United States. But if you look at the rates of gambling-related problems in the nation and the general population, they've remained relatively stable even after that and during that gambling uh, expansion. I do think that new gambling opportunities provide uh, new access to different individuals. So there is some risk for increased rates of gambling and increased rates of gambling-related problems. But as Marlene described earlier, I think that there are adaptation processes that kick in. A little bit of novelty goes away. People adjust. The public health system responds. And those increases you really kind of stabilize and drop after these new opportunities open. All right. Um, Marlene, how do you answer that? And I should say that Massachusetts, of all the states, seems to give way more back in terms of support of programs about prevention and treatment and looking at this as an issue. Yes, the Massachusetts Expanded Gaming Act provided, the, as we were talking about earlier, the 5% of gross gaming revenue to the Public Health Trust Fund. And that Public Health Trust Fund, uh, when it's fully funded, the estimates have been between 15 to $20 million annually. That is far and beyond uh, what any other state is, is doing to fund uh, the prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery supports uh, around this issue. So, uh, yes, we are a leader. And I think that because of the Public Health Trust Fund Executive Committee and the uh, efforts afoot at the Department of Public Health and the Mass Gaming Commission, we really will be leaders. Uh, they are taking those monies and really putting them back into the communities, whether that's uh, funding the research, funding the Game Sense program, funding uh, uh, media campaigns. The Department of Public Health has just one, done one around men of color um, with a history of substance abuse, uh, funding programs such as the Photo Voice for youth and um, affected areas, uh, looking at recovery ambassadors. So there's a number of different ways that um, they're going to really try to pinpoint and impact uh, people who are at, at risk. I, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about, you know, we still have the lottery. We have, we don't just have a lottery. We have the most profitable lottery in the world, mm. um, far and beyond any other lottery in the U.S. and 
and like I said, anywhere else, uh, next to Singapore. Mm. But um, around $800 for every man, woman, and child is spent on the lottery in a year here in Massachusetts. So we um, we already had a very gambling-focused state. So when we consider sports betting, for example, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about this. And the reason for that is because we already know lots of people already bet on sports and they bet with their bookie. Well, it's hard for me to go to bookies right now and get the helpline promoted or to mm -hmm. have a program promoted. But when you legalize it and regulate it, then you have an opportunity to really reach those those uh, individuals playing. And uh, when you look online, there's so many more ways to intervene. So when we talk about online um, sports betting or online lottery versus um, brick and mortar, a lot of people are very concerned about it. And it's because it's a new a new area, a new frontier. However, there are a lot of ways that we've learned from Europe and elsewhere that we can really intervene. So I think that, again, we're, we're spending a lot of resources and really trying to do it right across that whole spectrum of prevention through recovery. Um, but there's still much more to be done. All right, Ed Talbot, you get the last word. What do you want to say to somebody listening about um, how we should think about compulsive gambling in a state that has a big lottery, um, more casinos to come, and more other opportunities to gamble. Well, I think there's an obligation on any provider of uh, gambling to address the downside of it. And, uh, you know, I don't think any casino operator wants to be uh, in favor of living on addicted gamblers. So uh, to partner and, and network with the people who are in the prevention and recovery uh, support uh, and treatment Specter and try to work with them to come up with new programs like Game Sense. Uh, you know, New Hampshire, I know from uh, the outset, was the first state to have a state lottery. All their money from proceeds from the money go to the educational trust fund. And there's no way in the world you can knock that. That helps keep the taxes down and benefits education. But by the same token, there's nothing going to problem gambling services. Where in Massachusetts, that is being addressed. And I think we need to follow that in, uh, elsewhere. Um, and have these programs available because somebody needs to be there on the other end of that helpline when the call is made. Because if it's not answered or the person doesn't get the right answer, it's probably going to be another bet. And then there's the chance the person wins and says, oh, things are turning around. I'll see you later. And it only gets worse. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for joining me about this uh, very important issue. And um, I'll be uh, paying attention to it as we get these other facilities in place. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Debbie LaPlante is the director of Cambridge Health Alliance's Division on Addiction. She is also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Marlene Warner is the executive director of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. And Ed Talbot is the executive director of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. Coming up, every family has its origin story, but chances are you haven't seen one like playwright Key Gwynn's inspired by the lives of his parents after the Vietnam War. Gwynn's rap-infused romantic comedy, Viet Gone, is an unexpected recounting of the realities faced by the Vietnamese refugee Americans who came to the U.S. to start a gang. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. A hip-hop beat and a fantasy ninja battle. Viet Gone is not what you'd expect for a play about Vietnam war refugees. Playwright Kui Gwen turns the kinda true story of how his parents met after the fall of Saigon into a laugh-out-loud rom-com edged with satire. Viet Gone just opened its one-month run at the Boston Center for the Arts Plaza Theater, and here in studio to tell us more about the show is Michelle Aguilian, director of Company One Theater's production of Viet Gone. Michelle has been a theater artist in the Boston area for over 23 years. Her directing credits include Miss Saigon, Pillow Man, and the Joy Luck Club. Hello, Michelle. Hi. <laughs> Glad to have you. Thanks. And also with me, Quentin Nguyen Nui actor with Company One Theater, playing the role of Quang in Viet Gone. He is also currently a junior at the Boston University School of Theater. Welcome, Quentin. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, the play is set in 1975. I thought I would give people a little bit of context mm -hmm. about what else was going on during that time. So in 1975, Margaret Thatcher became the leader of the British Conservative Party. Saturday Night Live debuted. Bruce wow. Springsteen released his third album, Born to Run. Mm -hmm. It was the very first Jaws film. The Jeffersons, The Carol Burnett Show, and All in the Family were big TV shows. Yep. And the Vietnam War ends. So that's the context, Michelle, for Viet Gone. Mm. Um, and it really takes you back to that time period after the fall of Saigon. Talk a little bit about just the uh, the sense of the play before we get into the details of it. Within context of what you just said? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so these refugees landed in the middle of all that. Um, I was here, too. I was um, only eight um, it was culturally explosive and confusing as far as, you know, maintaining my own identity as well as trying to assimilate to this new uh, country. Although I was born here, we left quickly, moved around a lot because of uh, my dad being in the military. But within context of the show, wow, I can't even imagine because I was born here and this place for them is completely brand new. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they bring with them a lot of trauma. Just the trauma of being in a new place, aside from yeah, coming from besides war. the trauma yeah, that the, they already yeah. experienced, leaving yeah. their families and their country. Yeah, I, I can't. I try to imagine what that's like. I, and I can only relate to it in a very tiny way. Now, the play itself has is personal to you in a different way because your father served in the military, as yeah. you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. but he was also killed in the Vietnam War. He was when they were bailing out of Saigon in April '75. He was killed on a transport called Operation Baby Lift, where they were flying out hundreds and hundreds of orphans that were fathered by military men and getting them homes here. President Ford um, approved this uh, mission, and so he was on the first flight out, and the hydraulics failed, and it crashed in a rice paddy nearby. Um, the pilot, uh, many of the crew survived. Um, he did an amazing job saving most everyone, um, except it was, so, it was yeah. pretty packed, and there was yeah. still a lot of children and crew that died as well. Yeah. So here we have a situation that you've described in its, in its grimmest form, and the playwright uh, takes that, yeah. takes the 
as we say, kind of true story of his parents meeting and turns it into this really amazing, funny, I just want people to know it's hilarious. I mean, not just little funny, but like out loud laughing funny story that has a lot of meaning to it. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you bring that all together as a director? Because you are dealing with, you know, subject matter that handled incorrectly could be offensive, but it's not at sure, all. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, we had we had a great dramaturg team that helped us keep real about what was happening to these people, right? We had to have a foundation of where they came from and why. And then and then embrace the joy of the play, you know, the joy of, of these people meeting each other and how funny it is and how outrageous the storytelling is. It's it's really unusual, I think. Uh, to see a play like this, uh, seeing Asians portrayed like this on stage, and I really, really wanted to work on something like that. Uh, it occurs to me in this moment, I have not specifically said what mm-hmm. the play is about without giving away stuff, sure. but it is about these two people who leave after the fall of Saigon, meet at an Arkansas refugee That's camp, right. That's and then, you know, uh, develop a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Without uh, giving too much away. Without That's giving, perfect. That's all I'm saying. I'm yeah. <laughs> too much away. <laughs> um, so, Quentin, you play the young man in question who ends up one half of the kind of true story of of Quee's, Quee the Playwright's uh, parent story. And mm-hmm. uh, you have a personal connection to Vietnam as well. I do. <laughs> I do. I play the young man. He's actually, I don't know if he's young. He's 30 years old. <laughs> and uh, That's young. young. He's young. He's young. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I have a personal connection. I'm Vietnamese. I'm half Vietnamese. My dad came here in 1975 from Guam. He flew from Guam to Camp Pendleton um, and then to, I believe, um, somewhere in the Midwest where I went to college. So sort of, not to give any spoilers or anything, but a reverse track of my character in the play, Mm -hmm. Quang. Mm -hmm. My dad also was a refugee from Vietnam, South Vietnam. He was from Saigon. And it is truly amazing to see not only a play set about Vietnamese people that are Vietnamese refugees, but a rom-com mm-hmm. yeah. about Vietnamese people who are refugees. That's um, romantic comedy if people are going, what are we talking about? That's romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. um, definitely romantic comedy <laughs> yeah. is uh, sort of like um, time plus tragedy in this situation. But it's it's truly uh, something that I never thought I would see myself doing as a kid in theater would be portraying someone who's Vietnamese um, because I'm also biracial. Um, and I'm usually portraying characters who are white, and let alone portraying an, uh, a Vietnamese person who's multidimensional, mm-hmm. um, who's complex, mm. um, who's funny, and who gets to be a romantic lead. Um, I think it's definitely like a far shot from The King and I and some of the things that I've been involved in in my past. Some of the roles that people may know that, uh, rightly so, people have pointed out are stereotypical in their portrayal of Asians on film and in theater. Mm-hmm. So. You both mentioned it in passing, but let's talk about what it means to be a part of an all-Asian cast at this time, because, of course, we have the good blowback from Crazy Rich Asians and that cast and people saying, wow, representation uh, matters. But for you as a young person, (laughs) this event happened a long time ago, even though you have a personal connection to it. What does it mean to you? So much to begin with. Um, I've been in one all-Asian cast before in my life. It was American Huang Got by Lloyd Saw. It was a Korean-American family, and I was in that. But this play, I can't really stress how much uh, this play means to me, not just because of the people who are in it, but because of the story that's being told on stage. 
Um, I wasn't in the Vietnam War. I was oh, born. Clearly. <laughs> uh, just disclaimer. Yeah. Um, I was born very, very far away from it. Um, yeah. But it's determined a lot of how my life has been lived. Um, Did you know anything about it prior to this play? Well, actually, my dad speaks very seldomly of the war. He speaks very highly of Vietnam. But the war is not a subject that he likes to touch up upon, um, mm -hmm. mostly because he doesn't want, I think, that conflict to define his existence. Um, I think that's definitely a struggle that Viet Cong encompasses in a sense that it is mm. a show about people and not about uh, a conflict or uh, a headline that sort of objectifies the mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. So, But for me, speaking personally, as a first-generation immigrant, it feels like that's a past that I've been cut off from because of the lack of words that have um, surrounded it. And so actually being able to go into my father's shoes, per se, and be around the same age he was when he came over is very emotional it's definitely an emotional roller coaster for me mm -hmm. even though i was not involved in the conflict itself it feels like i'm reliving something that's close to my experience in a channeling sense. some of it perhaps yes yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's my guest quentin nguyen nui mm -hmm. and he's an actor with company one theater playing the role of quang in Viet Gone. now back to you michelle mm -hmm. director yeah. um there are a lot of elements in this production that are just totally different. We should say that Kui Gwen, the playwright, mm -hmm. in his real job, I guess, if you say, uh, writes for Marvel Comics. Yeah. So there's a kind of a comic sensibility to some of this. There uh, is an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you, as a, as a director, approach that? Because it's, you know, way crazy in some parts. It's way crazy, <laughs> and it's, it's out of my lane. It's not a format or genre, rom-com, that I uh, work in. But I really wanted the challenge because it's a really loud, bold, funny. I don't do romantic comedies. <laughs> um, not that I'm anti-romantic comedy. I'm mm. actually a sucker for them, which is probably why I kind of stay away. But uh, this was so unique. And um, with a very strong female lead. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, several of them, mm -hmm. right? That's um, true. Played by <laughs> two actresses, mm -hmm. but... One of them plays multi-characters. Mm. What a challenge for her. It's amazing, her work. Mm. But, but yeah, I, I loved that we embraced the rap, the comic book uh, sensibility about it. Uh, we really leaned into that. So one of the things that we've mentioned is that um, it's not a musical, but there are rap set pieces yeah. in the production. Yeah. I want to give people a sense of this. Mm -hmm. um, this is an excerpt from the Manhattan Theater Club's 2016 production of Viet Gong yeah. with actors Jennifer Ikeda and Raymond Lee as they perform I'll Make It Home. Greeted by hate signs, not high fives. They dislike us. This is where we'll build a new life. They despise us. A new home grown from an army base. In a country not known for love and peeps with a yellow face. A place where our kids will think of us with disgrace. After all the years I fought, it was all just a waste. Now the pain in my brain keeps me up all night. Dreaming about my family, wondering, wondering if, if they're, they're all right. right. Regretting a life not full of good. So again, that's from Viet Gone, um, one of the uh, rap set pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just one of the interesting details about the production. The other is about the language, which I really wanted you two to, to speak about. Um, oh, sure. I think it's okay to mention that at the beginning of the play, the playwright makes it clear that what you hear from the Asian characters is not going to be what you have typically <laughs> heard from Asian characters on screen. Um, Michelle, explain. Well, um, hmm, it's so, so <laughs> where do I start? They, they speak very modernly, mm. meaning like, they're Queez generation, the way they speak. Uh, they don't speak in accents. 
They don't speak in stereotypes, stereotypical accents. Mm -hmm. What's fun is that he takes the, he flips it. All the white characters speak in stereotypes, you know. Um, I can't give that away. I yeah. can't even begin to. Uh, well, no, I'm not saying do it. I'm yeah, just yeah. It just cracks it. me up. Yeah, yeah they, they speak yeah. in American, Americana-isms, mm-hmm. sort of, because, you know, right? That's mm-hmm. what we normally see of Asians. And it's really pretty interesting to see yeah. that flip. And, Quentin, what I appreciated about it is that if you put yourself in your character's shoes, as you must, mm-hmm. then here you are in this country. You don't speak the language. You can understand each other perfectly well, as you would. And you're wondering, what in the world are they saying? It's all these colloquialisms. If you hear Americanism spoken back to you in really the way it is when you don't, when it makes no sense, (laughs) it's really quite effective. Perfect description. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So was that fun to do, to just to flip that around? Because (laughs) you're at different times in the play and you get a chance to play with language as well. Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because talking about representation and talking about bodies on stage that represent people, I think that voices on stage and dialects on stage that represent people are important as well. Uh, I think growing up Asian um, in the States and like seeing a bunch of Asian people on TV that spoke a language that I didn't or talked with an accent that I didn't have was always very confusing. Where I looked up to like pro skaters and rappers when I was growing up who were not Asian, yes. um, who talk like how I talk because I learned how to talk from them. And then being able to actually be that on stage and then see my castmates who are also Asian speaking in the same syntax that I recognize in myself is really liberating in a sense because, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a real person who's totally reflective of me and my generation, both racially and um, in the way we speak. And um, culturally, language-wise, if that, that's a clumsy way of putting it, <laughs> yeah, but kind of, yeah. you know, sort of that way. I did an interview with Jimmy O. Yang, who's a pretty popular Asian stand-up comic, and he learned yeah. to, when he moved here to America, he learned English from rap artists. So, yes. so, yeah, so he didn't know that, you know, there was a whole other language beyond rap artists, so it's pretty funny. I mean, obviously that's he's pretty funny. funny, so he talks about it yeah. um, uh, quite a bit. Michelle, what did you know about the Vietnam War, except obviously what happened with your own personal family, but yeah. in terms of history? Because I found myself watching the play and thinking, did I know that? You know, it's vaguely you have this sure. information, but yeah. some things come come back in a little bit sharper relief as a result of the play. Yeah, because mm-hmm. uh, I was very young. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were stationed overseas, different bases, so we were exposed to it in our own way. Um, but no, I didn't learn about the details of that until I was much older. So I, you could come to it kind of a blank slate a little bit? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Not quite totally blank. Yeah, because yeah. this is the third third show I've worked on that's based on okay yeah you know. that's true that, yeah. uh, so so I've had I had to, the first one I had to do a lot of research on and I discovered a lot of things I didn't know either mm-hmm. and and you know it's always been pieces of a puzzle mm. of course I didn't realize it was a puzzle until until I started reading up and it started to fill in a little bit and a lot of things started to make sense because you know from from an eight-year-old point of view you know the guys would you know all the dads would leave and they'd be gone for a long time we didn't know why and then they'd come back and they'd have huge parties mm. that was my point of view mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really loud parties james brown was always blasting the ojs <laughs> and uh, elvis and uh, they would they would decompress they would just no one would talk about it yeah yeah i had no idea and then I went to school on a military base, and, you know, we saw some of the military that were around, and, you know, they would play Santa for us when it was Christmas, but had no idea what they were 
experiencing on the, on the other side of things. I should be embarrassed to admit that it never occurred to me, where did the people go when they came here? I just never thought about the refugees from Vietnam. I never thought about it. Here for, I can give so. you a personal point of view. <laughs> mm-hmm. I landed here in 93, and Operation Babylift, which is the transport my dad was on, they had an anniversary, right, anniversary of that event in 1995. And I opened up the Globe at work one day, and there it was anniversary because a lot of the refugees were adopted out here mm-hmm. in the Boston area. So I had no idea that a lot of those kids that had survived were adopted here. Here I was kind of, you know, moving around in my life and had no idea that maybe I was passing someone that was there. Mm. And that intrigued me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But again, we want to make clear to people that this is not a history lesson. No. <laughs> no. Nope. So you're going to walk away with it. It's, it's the themes of love and loss Absolutely. and family Absolutely. and loyalty and patriotism. It's it's yeah. all of that uh, together. Is. And also some observations about people coming over about racism in this country. So it's pretty, it's everything. And it's hilarious. It's, it's it, I know hila- it's hard to get your mind around. It but happens it really is to funny. be hilarious. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It takes all that serious stuff and flips it and makes fun of it and pokes at it. I really love that. So now when I read that Kui Gwen, the playwright, mm-hmm. his parents had not seen it yet. This is the first of that's, a trilogy. Is that's that still what we've been true? told, yeah. And this, wow. yeah, the second one is being produced right now in Southern California. So they've still not seen it. They have not. Although we just somebody just sent us a picture of them too. Wow. What they look like. Wow. Which was I, I don't know why that just kind of well, it's Got quite to poignant. Me, but, uh, yeah. At the end of this particular piece of it, I don't know how he's going to pick up on the second part. Is really mm-hmm. got me. It's very poignant um, oh, and, um, and and quite touching, and it just oh, causes you to think about um, all of the familial connections and relationships and what you give up, Quentin, to get to where you are. Did you feel a sense of that as you're portraying a, a young man about your age, but but still, you know, a lot going on in his life in the ways that. Hopefully you don't have that much stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> well, putting myself in his shoes as both um, a 30-year-old man, which is what he's becoming, uh, a lot of this is, I think, becoming a coming of age, even though he's 30 years old. He's meeting the love of his life. He's going to get married, um, it's implied. And then skipping to the, uh, not the end of his life, but he's 75, 70-ish uh, years old. And um, it's sort of funny, I was joking about this to my friend the other day, that I feel like, Denzel Washington and Fences, the way mm. he played Troy on mm. Broadway and then played his father uh, a while later, except I do it in 30 seconds and a quick change. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The more that I dive into Quang and the more that I dive into his footsteps, I th- just think that the more uh, sort of emotional the journey becomes because I get to put myself in my dad's footsteps and then mm-hmm. talk to me about the war, in a sense. Mm-hmm. You're saying with the epilogue of the play. Mm-hmm. I think it's taught me a lot about life, what it means, what what my dad had to go through in order to be in this country and to find a home and to establish that for himself. And it's been like a really great education in that for myself as I become his age, as he was when he got here to this country, Mm. and um, what path I'm taking versus his at my age and and where those footsteps are, I think has really been a trip for me. So... Question for you. Did you know how to rap before? Did I know how to rap? Well, as, as you talked about, being an Asian, <laughs> the way I learned to talk was from rap. Okay. <laughs> well, doesn't mean know that you knew how to do it. I mean, uh, I can did. look at it. He oh, did. No, no, no. His audition, he rapped. Okay. Uh, I rapped. I wrote okay. a rap for my amazing. audition, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. He, he, he rapped an original okay. piece. I did an original piece for my audition. I was sitting there in my psychology amazing. class, and I, I saw the email for the audition, and it was like, two-minute rap? I looked up. Oh, I was like, yeah. I don't know if I care about this. So I was writing a rap. 
And it I was used to, amazing. Okay. Thanks. It was amazing. It was from my dad's perspective of coming over this country or what I had imagined my dad's perspective oh, to be. Very good. Which I thought was cool. Character preparation in the first place. But no, I think I grew up listening to a lot of rap because being Asian, there's not a lot of voices that are representative of yours in this country, music-wise. Yeah. Like, we have K-pop. Right. But I'm not Korean. Right. So, like, right. I felt like there was country and then there was, like, rap. <laughs> and I gravitated towards the latter because I don't, I, you know. Um, From your age and what, what it speaks to you. Definitely. Then, yeah. It's okay. definitely, like, it. yeah. something in, the, in this generation that, that made a lot of sense to me as a kid growing up. Um, okay. Michelle, I think I asked you, and then I skipped over it, but I want to talk about what it means to be directing an all-Asian cast um, for oh. you. I know you've had oh, some other privilege. experiences, but, you know, what does that mean to you? I've loved it. Every cast, I try to make a family. Mm. It's my family away from my family because I spend so much time in the theater. But it's been especially meaningful because this is my, I don't know, fourth or fifth show mm-hmm. with an all-Asian cast. Mm-hmm. Especially in the last two years, it's become more uh, concentrated. I've had more opportunity to work with Asian casts. It's been really, really an honor to help tell these stories Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese. I actually got a chance to tell a story from a Filipino woman's point of view last mm. summer, which never, never happens. And I'm an actor, too. So yeah. that was the first time oh, I okay. played someone yeah. from yeah. exactly from my point of view, from my age, and never got to do that before. So you can see how things are opening up. Yes, because I've been in theater for a very, very long time, and it was always, you know, kind of like these little fads that would pop up over the years. But this hopefully is sticking because it's been the last two years I've been able to be involved in work that involves Asians and Asian points of view. What do you want people to take away from the play? Oh, just um, I hope they can relate to this couple. I, that's what that's what I take away from it, mm-hmm. amidst all the chaos and the confusion and identity issues and cultural. That it's a basic love story, how these two people are drawn to each other, and how two people anywhere in the world can be drawn to each other despite what's going on around them. That's what really that's what gets me about this. Okay, yeah. that's a perfect place for us to end. Cool. Thank you both for joining me. Thank I, you. I, I appreciate it. Michelle Aguillon is the director of Company One Theater's production of Viet Gong, and Quentin Nguyen Nui plays the role of Quang in Viet Gong. Viet Gong is playing at the Boston Center of the Arts Plaza Theater now through May 25th. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.